Um, so, uh, just to begin, I guess, Maurice, uh, do you prefer, uh, pr- like professor, doctor, no, Mr. Is Maurice is great. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. So you were, so you're a professor emeritus from, uh, the university of Calgary. Right. Right. Uh, how long did you teach there for? I was the Dean of Fine Arts for five years, and then I think I hung on part-time for another five years just teaching a bit. Okay. And then I retired at 64. Okay, great. Um, Before that, I was uh, Dean of Academic Affairs at the Emily Carr College of Institute of Art and Design in Vancouver. Yep. The bulk of my career was at Brock, where I started in 1968 and taught for 22 years. And that's where I started teaching film studies. Okay, great. Um, so I guess my first question for you is, so you, uh, were you born and raised in Alberta? No, I was born in Leader, Saskatchewan. Well, pre-late Saskatchewan. Grew up in Leader and moved okay. to Calgary when I was eight in 1950. Uh, when I was 15, I got my heart's desire, which was a job as an usher at the Hitching Post Theater on 8th Avenue and 2nd Street East in Calgary. As the the name suggests, it specialized in reruns and westerns. Um, But that was like my dream come true, to to get paid 60 cents an hour (laughs) to watch films. Um, uh, Who would have thunk that that would parlay into an academic career, where I still kept making about 60 cents an hour to watch (laughs) films but at least it was an element of prestige to it that, that's such a common thing i find with like uh film lovers and people who go into it it's just like that like they start as ushers video store employees it's just yeah. like these like these they want to get into the industry somehow i guess <laughs> yeah yeah um so yeah well, so lucky that i had this passion for film and, and stumbled into a career right um i did my my master's and my doctorate in English literature. Uh, My my MA was on a restoration writer, the Earl of Rochester, and my doctorate was on John Lilly, Mm -hmm. who was the primary influence on Shakespeare. So I had no idea that film studies could be a discipline. Right. Uh, When I was riding around looking for jobs, uh, the chairman of the English department at Brock University noticed one line in my rather sparse resume. It said I was reviewing films for the student newspaper at the University of Birmingham. So that prompted them to ask if I'd like to start a film studies course, which was an entirely new concept to me. I had no idea that could be done. Right. And so that's where I ended up finding my career. So were you like kind of like, I mean, so, I mean, being kind of like the first kind of a Canadian film studies program. I mean, what were you looking to for um, reference? Like, how would you like going about teaching it? Because um, like, what was there at that point even? Well, there was nothing. Uh, like in North America or abroad? Well, I mean. there was a lot in the States. Yeah. There was nothing in Canada. Yeah. Now, in the, uh, the summer of 1966, McGill and the National Film Board put on a summer school for prospective film teachers. And um, Graham Petrie was there from McMaster and John Katz from from Oise and uh, myself and and Peter Harcourt. And and so we really established there the, um, the, the foundation for film studies courses across Canada. People who attended that workshop went on to start courses which blossomed into programs right we in york we're kind of neck and neck 
Uh, York very quickly went into filmmaking. At Brock, we didn't have that kind of budget. So what we pieced together was a film studies major that started, I think, a year before York's, in which we, we put together film courses and dramatic literature courses and um, dramatic theory courses. Uh, so that we could offer it as a substantial standalone program. It was basically um, um, a dramatic literature history um, program, except that the texts were not plays but films. And so that was the distinctive element. Right. So I guess like, yeah, so my question, I guess, uh, being born sort of in the uh, video age where like now, like every film's kind of at your fingertips. I you mean, love so, I know. No, it's incredible. I mean, just like uh, like a few like this year, I've just been kind of going through like silent film stuff. And it's like it's all on YouTube. Like you watch like the entire like filmography of George Millais and just like it's there and it takes no well, time at all. Like in the old days, when we first started, all we had was 16 millimeter prints. Right. And so we would bring in a 16 millimeter print and run it for the students a one time only. And they had to take notes and then we'd have a discussion of it. And uh, they would have to remember enough to be able to write about it when, when, when required to. Yeah. Um, uh, now, it's, as you say, it's so much easier. It was also um, much more challenging to do film, film scholarship. Um, I know for my first books on on Tennessee Williams films and Hitchcock's British films, um, I had to go to the Library of Congress in Washington. Yeah. I had to go to the British Film Institute in London and book screenings of those films. <laughs> and in each case, I would have only one, one viewing, but I would take copious notes and then do the writing right after. So uh, it, it was very easy to make mistakes back yeah. then, and so I'm 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 often humiliated when I read some of my early writing, because uh, obviously you misremember. Uh, it's hard to be precise. Now there's for no sure, excuse sure. for it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I remember, uh, actually one thing I encounter sometimes is like when I go back and say, like read like a, a Roger Ebert review and like, I'll read it and I'm like, that's like not even what happens in the story. Like it's completely like wrong. And it's like, well, yeah, like when you're watching a movie once and then like, okay, I have to get my notes down and you might watch. Like if, if you're like uh, like a film critic, I guess you might be watching like two or three movies in a row before you go home and now you have to write your notes yeah. and you have just like, it's if you're covering a festival, you're stuck oh, yeah. with it. Now, there's one universal phenomenon. Um, with full confidence, you can take notes in a film, and you've got, and you're using your finger, you're writing in the dark, and you're using your finger so that you won't repeat right over the same paper at the same time, and you take these copious notes, and then the lights come on, and you've got 40 layers of writing across one line. And of course, you can't decipher anything. <laughs> So I, got, I started to get into the habit of making mental notes of the, the lines and details I was going to use right. instead of trusting to the, the impossible writing. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I guess you touched upon like, sort of like, yeah. Uh, so at Brock, so did they start building up like its own like 16 millimeter um, film catalog, I guess? Yeah, we started reference? buying them. We bought, we bought Psycho. I think that was the first, uh, no, the first, the first uh, 16 millimeter print we bought was... Uh, Battleship Potemkin, because it could also be used in the history classes. Right. And it a <laughs> uh, but we didn't buy that many because 60 millimeter prints were pretty expensive oh, too. I bet. Yeah. 
Um, when I was at Lethbridge, actually, uh, for two years teaching in the in the, uh, the 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 university side of the vocational university college, I started a film society there. Oh. I, uh, we brought 16 millimeter films in and would have discussions after. And um, it was it was an interesting experience because uh, we offered a five film program for five dollars, I think, something like that. And every single program, the films arrived late. <laughs> every single program, I'd be on to Warner Brothers in Calgary, having them throw something on the bus for us to run that night. So, and then the film that was supposed to have arrived would arrive a week late, so we'd have an extra showing. I got no complaints because the people were getting 10 films for five bucks instead of five. Right. And so we had this international series, Bergman and that kind of stuff. Oh, my and God. <laughs> the blanks were westerns and film noirs that we had to run in as last-minute substitutes. Right. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. That's amazing. Uh, it's like one of those things that uh, I never really hear about. Because uh, actually, I'm curious, like, uh, like, what was like film distribution like? Like, what... So it was you, all commercial. The, the only thing you could get was commercial. With this one exception, there was a film society movement right, right across Canada with encouragement and promotion by the Canadian Film Institute in Ottawa. And so there was this circuit where local people would get together and organize a group. And they would bring in a Bergman movie or an Antonioni movie. Or, and, and that was how we were introduced to world cinema. Right. Uh, and the film society then prompted some commercial cinemas to take a chance with an occasional art film as well. I remember when I lived in Lethbridge, I would drive in for the Calgary Film Society screenings at the Jubilee Auditorium every once, once a month or so, just, just to try to, to catch up. Okay. That's, yeah, no, that's uh, su super interesting because I don't know if there's really, like, do you know if, like, is there a history written about, like, kind of, uh, like, film and, like, film studies in Canada? Like, because it's always new, like, it's always the American perspective. And it's like, yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. I, know, I know there's, like, an industry side, but not even, like, the, like, the actual critical side. Yeah. I was on a panel at McGill once, uh, McGill or Concordia, about that. And there were very interesting talks by a number of people who were in, in that period. But I'm not sure that there's actually been a book on it. Interesting. Okay. But there were many times. It was you, you had the feeling that you were in on this the start of something new, and that in itself was really, really fascinating and exciting. Okay. You know, yeah, it is. It, I mean, it really. Yeah, there's like that shift that happens, and it's just like, yeah, when you're talking about like just like the expanse of Canada, like this massive, massive country, and then like getting these films kind of trickling from like the east out to the yeah. west and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. 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 Great. Um, so I guess like my next question, I guess, was, I mean, so you wrote a book on Paul Morrissey, uh, the films of Paul Morrissey. So I'm just kind of curious, um, like, how did you discover uh, these Paul Morrissey films, these Andy Warhol produced things early on? And then uh, I've, I've been interested in in the um, the um, underground film scene in the 60s and 70s in New York. And so I did have that that early interest. Uh, when I was still at Brock, I was uh, nominated to sit on the Ontario Film Review Board, and I put in, I think, four or five years on that. Um, the Liberal government at the time had decided to shift the emphasis from uh, banning to classifying, 
Um, and I remember one film that came up for the panel I was on was uh, one of the, uh, the, the, the Flesh trilogy. Right. And I, I hadn't seen it before. Um, and I found myself in the position of being the only person arguing for its approval. Um, to the standard eye of the panel, it was a piece of ribald junk. Right. But I had a sense that there was something more going on in it than that. And I argued for its approval and happened to carry the day. And just after I'd started thinking about uh, the, the Morrissey film, I got an invitation from someone who was general editor for a series of auteur studies at Cambridge University Press. And this was an invitation to propose subjects for volumes in that series, fresh off uh, an analysis of um, a Warhol movie, I proposed Morrissey and, and got the commission and set about watching all the Morrissey films I could and writing the book on them. What year was this about? If you... I have no idea. Okay, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was a long time ago. A long time ago. Perfect. <laughs> um, I met Morrissey. Uh, he's the only filmmaker I've ever written on that I did meet. Okay. I, I went to New York and interviewed him. And we carried on a correspondence for a while, and, and he was really welcoming my approach because uh, nobody had taken him seriously before. Nobody had, had uh, suggested that he was producing substantial works of art with a moral purpose and, and with this, the sensitivity and cohesion that you, you uh, find in an artist. Uh, so he encouraged my, my work on him, um, and as a result of my doing that book, he um, persuaded Criterion to have me do the commentary or write pieces on the uh, Laserdisc versions of, of uh, Blood for Dracula and Flesh for Frankenstein. Right. Yeah, and so that was around 96 that those got released. And I noticed, too, that... Yeah. Uh, because I think when I first uh, contacted you, I didn't realize that uh, you had done commentary tracks. As I had just seen the uh, liner note essays that are on uh -huh. the website. And then so I've gone and listened to the commentary tracks. But I also noticed that you had done a commentary for them back with Invasion of the Body Snatchers. That was the first one. Yeah, and that yeah. was like in 1986, I guess. Yeah. 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 So, I uh, think oh. one of the first ones that that Criterion did, I, I later learned that it was some. It, it was somehow controversial, oh. and I don't know why or how. I don't think I'd said anything controversial, but I think it may have been that I was doing the kind of close textual analysis that even Criterion was not used to giving films. Well, because that was fairly early on too. Like, because I think it's in the first ten spine numbers of when they were started yeah. doing it. So I mean, it's like really early on. Yeah. Um, and they were just kind of like, I actually just read, uh, there's a nice little, uh, article in a book called like the DVD and the study of film. And, um, it just like kind of talks about like how, uh, the guy who started Criterion, uh, like his whole deal was he was really interested in multimedia and the idea of like really breaking down like film as like, or anything down into its component parts. And so it was just a matter of like discovering laser discs, you could put all this material on. And then yeah. it was like by accident, like that commentary tracks were discovered because, or like the idea of a commentary track, because they were talking to one film expert and he just started talking about movies and they're like, well, could we just record this and put it on as another track? And he went, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> 
So I guess you're right. You're kind of at the like very early stages of like the foundations of commentary tracks as we know them. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, That's yeah. what you get by by having the sense to get born early. You, <laughs> you get to be in on the start of things. That's so you, right. <laughs> you don't have to be that good so long as you're early. <laughs> so how did you uh, initially? So if I don't know, this is going back like this is 1985, 86. Uh, like how did they, why did they approach you for Invasion of the Body Snatchers or like, um, like I'm just curious like how they were going about contacting just people. Do you remember at all? Um, yeah. Um, I a friend of I was living in St. Catharines. Ontario, and a friend who was a film teacher at um, um, the BCIT in Vancouver was um, a friend of Bob Stein, who was the producer of the first yeah. uh, laser discs for Criterion. And my friend uh, suggested me um, for something, and they were looking for someone for that film, and I had a line on it, and so that's how I got it. I, I knew a friend of a friend, and he knew the producer of that particular disc. So uh, Nigel Kazmakis, the woman who produced it and recorded me on the thing, has, has remained a very dear, close friend of mine ever since. Oh, great. <laughs> Um, so yeah, like, so when I was listening to the Flesher Frankenstein blood for Dracula commentary, the way that it's put together, uh, it's actually one of my least favorite ways they do it, where they take multiple sources and they compose, they compile them all into like, th- like separate sound bites, even though all three people are in separate rooms. Um, uh-huh. so like, did you record like a full length commentary at that time and yeah. then they edited it down? Okay. I think I did. Yeah. I know I did for invasion of the body snatchers right. and I think would have done for those as well. Because I certainly wasn't working in collaboration with any other commentators. Right, for sure. So, yeah, they would have recorded a whole thing and then they just compiled, I guess, the yeah. best thing that they could do, flow, uh, make creating that flow and whatnot. They, they kept the parts of my commentary that were least embarrassing to me. <laughs> for sure. I think I'd put it that way. That's yeah, that, that's always uh, thoughtful of them. <laughs> it is. I'm grateful. Um, so, uh, uh, I guess the other thing is like, when was the last time you watched uh, either Flesh or Frankenstein or Blood for Dracula? It's been 10 years, maybe 15. Okay. I should. Um, <laughs> I, I guarantee if I watch it, I won't I won't turn on the commentary. <laughs> um, yeah. Do you, do you own either copies of those films? In your I own? do. I've got DVDs of as many Morrisseys as, as I could find. Then anything that's available kind of in North yeah. America and or I whatever. Think, uh, because I may want to refresh my memory of them. I may want to do something else. I'm, I may be, I don't know, somebody out of the blue may invite me to do a course on Paul Morrissey. And right. so I want anybody listening? Yeah. So, <laughs> so I thought I'd, I'd, I'd keep the discs for just such eventualities. I just got the disc for Madam Wang um, within the last three weeks. And I have absolutely no memory of that film. I haven't a clue what I said about it or what happens. Mm. And I've been meaning to run the disc, but I still haven't gotten around to do it. This is what happens when you're retired. You have all this absolute freedom to do anything you want. And so you find yourself continually delaying and delaying. (laughs) But I will get around to it. Right. Uh, So are you a uh, Criterion Collection collector at all? No, not really. I've, I've got quite a few. Right. Um, when I moved to Victoria, I had to reduce my my um, library significantly. So my DVD collection shrank from about 4,000 to 1,000. <laughs> uh, 
And and so I, I have to make some hard decisions there. Right. Do you have that same problem that we all have where you kind of like you have all these movies, but you're just too busy watching new movies that you'd never go back and watch the old stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's no greater delight than digging up an old favorite. And, yep. and I, I try to watch The Searchers once a year. It occurred to me today that I really got to watch the man who shot Liberty Valance again. It's been a few years. And as I remember the the uh, election convention scene in that film, it's, it's very much like the rhetoric and madness and, and <laughs> like democracy that still pervades the American election scene. Yeah. It, there's something quintessentially corrupt about even the idealized process of American democracy. And Ford had his finger on it there with the John Carradine blabbermouth windbag. And uh, the even the idealist who gets elected is getting elected on a false pretense. Right. He's the man who shot Liberty Valance, but he's got the fame of the man who shot Liberty Valance. And so he's the celebrity apprentice who gets the job. <laughs> Yeah, the one the, the one movie that's always been on my mind this last year during this election cycle was a uh, Face in the Crowd. Uh, oh yeah, that's <laughs> dead on. Well, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, that movie is just like actually, I think it was like because that movie got brought up, I think during uh, the Bush years always, and then it's like, oh, well, we've outdone that now. So, <laughs> it, and notice how we always say, well, it can't get any worse than this. And, and this is what makes me believe there's a God. <laughs> every time we say it can't get any worse than this, you hear this hmm, from upstairs. And oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Watch me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That's it's something to watch. But yeah. yeah um, actually, I, this is off topic too. But yeah, uh, are, are you excited for uh, the new Scorsese silence? It's, uh, I was reading yeah. uh, Richard Brody mentioning that it's like basically it's the searchers. It's uh, what it oh, is. Yeah. <laughs> good, good. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if we need another the searchers. Yeah. It's, there's been a few. They're still pretty damn good. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, any, any, any Scorsese is an event. So I, I would certainly not miss it. Oh, yes. Um, let's see here. We're going through this pretty quick. Um,. I guess, like, as far as, like, guess, I don't know, for your own, like, for a criticism or something like that, um, do you have any of your own, like, favorite, like, commentary tracks or uh, writers on film? Um, I've withdrawn pretty much from the field. I read Anthony Lane in The New Yorker, and occasionally I read New York Times reviews, but I've, I, I don't subscribe to the film journals anymore. Sure. I simply don't have the time or space to, to, to pile them all up. Um so I, I can't really say I'm I'm up on on criticism. I was rather put off by what happened to academic film writing when it ballooned into the theoretical and the obscure. Mm -hmm. um, my feeling was if you are to write about a film, your objective should be to open out its meaning to work as closely with the text, within the text, as you can, um, and, and put together its components as evidence for what you are arguing the film is doing or saying. I was uh, disappointed to see film studies move away from that kind of textual analysis into um, untethered theorizing. 
which meant that you didn't have to see a film at all and you could write about it. And, and <laughs> I, I, I met several film teachers who said, no, I don't watch films anymore. I teach film studies. <laughs> and, and to me, that's just a contradiction in terms. So occasionally I still write about films for my blog. Right, yes, which people can and, find. You just have to type in Marisa Yakawar and uh, it's, it's, Yakawar, it's blogspot.com, I think. Is it that's what? it. Yeah, yakawarblogspot.com, yeah. And what I do there, I'm not writing reviews. Um, I'm just writing uh, a particular argument on the film that I've worked out on, on, again, just on a single viewing. I don't spend any time researching it. I just sure. and put it together. Yeah, from the hip, kind of. <laughs> just like yeah, thoughts. Yeah, yeah, from the hip, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's actually a really great website that uh, I've been using. It's called letterboxed.com. And what oh. it does is it's just like a film diary website. And there's like thousands and thousands of people that are on there. And uh, what's really great with them is they kind of they have like the movie poster accompanying the reviews. So you can create lists and stuff like that because I, I know that film people really love lists. Um, but I use this thing all the time. And like there's people who are writing all sorts of things. Like either uh, there's like professional critics keeping track of their uh, reviews and there's people who are just like putting their thoughts out very similar to this like sort of stuff that you're writing um and letterbox yeah it's 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 it's, it's letterbox and then just d.com i can send it to you it's it's a really neat little site because it's just a handy way of keeping track um because i always found that like i watch so many movies that i lose track of when i watched it and sometimes it's really great to go back and go when what was i doing that on that particular day and go oh i watched that movie (laughs) yeah oh that's good yeah um Uh, you mentioned film viewers passion for keeping lists yeah uh, let me modify that young film viewers passion for keeping <laughs> yes. lists. as you you um age in the projection room <laughs> you start forgetting lists right so, <laughs> no time no time and and uh, the, the the memory phase yeah uh yeah the one little thing i read of yours uh going through your blog was your uh review of batman versus superman um <laughs> which i don't even know if you remember writing at this point no, in, in the summer it's just like uh, i think you had mentioned that uh your early days of watching pro wrestling i think in the 50s or something like that <laughs> yeah. yeah that could be i have no memory of the oh. film what i wrote about it oh wow <laughs> down the memory hole i guess <laughs> yeah yeah Perfect. Um, yeah. They tell me it's going to get worse. That's <laughs> hard. Uh, let's see. Well, um, so I guess out of curiosity, do you remember the first movie you ever watched? I remember the first movie I ever proposed to a girl over. Oh, okay. Um, that was Sitting Pretty with Clifton Webb as Mr. Belvedere. Um my mother had taken my sister and myself to the seven o'clock screening on a Friday night in Leaders, Saskatchewan, and it was full. So we had to wait for the nine o'clock screening. So my mother and Mrs. Brost, um, a, a local rancher, were having coffee at the Chinese restaurant, and the three bros children and my sister and I were playing tag on leader main street. And somehow in that game of tag, I think the deal was you were home free. If you were touching my father's grocery store or his brother's hardware store or the granary that they owned at the end. And at one point, Violet bros, a beautiful girl with porcelain skin whom I remember still, this was when I was in grade one, um, grade two, actually, 
she said, boy, you Yakuas sure have a lot of property. <laughs> and I wittily said, uh, yes, and if you marry me, it'll all be yours. <laughs> um, she didn't answer at the time, but her brothers ribbed me mercilessly for weeks <laughs> after that. Um, I lived in dread that in my later life, I would get a phone call from a lawyer who was representing Violet Brost, and she had a breach of promise suit to file against me. <laughs> but that never happened. <laughs> to my regret, I heard that she uh, died quite young of cancer. Oh, and no. My worry was for naught. <coughs> so that's my first. That's your first film. <laughs> film. Yeah. I may have seen, well, I probably did see films before that, but that's the only one that I have this emotional attachment to. For sure. The woman that ever jilted me, you see. <laughs> it's sitting pretty. That would have been about 1940, 46, 47, thereabouts. Okay. Um, I guess the other crazy question to ask a person who watches movies for a living is, uh, do you have a favorite great movie that you love so much that you still... My Hold 10 up. best list has about 178 on it. Yeah. But I have one film that stands out because um, um, I think it's the richest and most uh, compelling film I've seen. It's a French film called Les Enfants du Paradis, Children of Paradise, made by um, uh, Marcel Carnet during the Nazi occupation of Paris. Uh, and one of its motives was to put to work all the best French filmmakers in Paris so that they would not be um, packed off to Berlin. Uh, it's uh, an amazing dramatic structure that works on, on so many levels. I find it inexhaustible. Um, I've taught it or lectured on it several times, and every time I, I just find it's, it's as, um, it's one of those films that, are as rich as the best Shakespeare is. And, and I've got no higher term of praise than that. Well, I, uh, it is on my watch list. I've actually had that on DVD for about five, six years, but I'm always intimidated by that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. Um, I guess like one last question um, would is going to be like, it's kind of about, I guess, uh, just like the theatrical experience and like like the, this difference of like projection and like digital representation, like watching it on TV screen. Um, do you find like you get a lot more out of like watching something in a theater compared to watching it on DVD at home for the first time? Or um, did you, do you not even care? It's just on, or. I think the, the, there's one kind of film that benefits from a communal reception, and that's comedy. I 100% agree. It's easier to laugh when other people are laughing than on your own. What really irritates me about the film experience, though, is the disregard that contemporary audiences have for the product, and that even the theater managers have for the product. Right, uh, And so you're watching films in which there are constant interruptions. The ushers come down to turn on a light to check the fire escape or something. Noise seeps in from the blockbuster next door. And what's worst of all is 
for some reason, people don't know that they are out in a public situation. They go to a movie and they think they're in their living rooms. And so they don't hesitate to yap all the way through the film. And if you ask them kindly to be quiet, they uh, insist that they're buying a ticket gives them the right to do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. So most most films, I think I would rather watch in the privacy of my home than have to put up with rotten audiences to, to get. Yeah, it's like it seems like yeah. Sometimes the theatrical experience is more stressful than it needs to be, just because it's like there's there's so many distractions. You're just like, oh, okay, shut up. There's like something going on. People are moving around, and you're just like, and there's candy wrappers, <laughs> and yeah, yeah. The worst uh, experience was somebody who brought fish and chips into a cinema, and and that's terrible because <laughs> the aroma just immediately fills the uh, the multiplex. Oh, I think my my worst experience was uh went to uh the the Coen Brothers True Grit and uh we were it was like Christmas Day I think and there was the, some guy sitting in the very front row with his cell phone open and it had like the full brightness so it was like oh, really yeah. distracting like everyone and it's like kind of like the um uh, the sloped seating. So everyone can just like, you're looking at the screen, but your eyes are going to keep going down to the bottom, like right hand corner. And there was like this like guy who just started yelling from the back row, just turn off your blip and phone. And, uh, and then the guy just kept going and then the guy could walk down and he was like one of those big, like, like professional fighter looking dudes who yep. came down and just started gesturing at him. And then he turned it off and I was like, Oh good. We were almost like had like a fist fight here on Christmas day in the theater. <laughs> it's like, I just want to watch the movie, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's oh the trouble God. with audiences. There are people in them. That's right. Darn people. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's it for my questions, Maurice. Um, okay. Thank you for uh, coming on and talking with me. Um, it's been sure, nice uh, to meet you. Yeah, always, you too. Always good to meet somebody from what Lethbridge Junior College grew into. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Remarkable institution. Yeah, I got to go back there uh, in like five, ten minutes, and apparently we have our AUP union christmas dinner thing <laughs> or something at lunch get some lasagna <laughs> yeah good fantastic live it up, live it up. yeah <laughs> perfect well thanks so much maurice well, i will you. i will continue following your uh posts on facebook uh, you, you're very passionate <laughs> yeah I, I tend to be yeah <laughs> um but anyways so yeah I think uh, the given term is curmudgeonly oh, okay yeah <laughs> You're not too much of a curmudgeon. I've met some real curmudgeons. <laughs> oh, okay. I'll, I'll keep trying. Perfect. I have to make your best 10 list of curmudgeons. Okay. <laughs> have you ever watched any, like that, the documentaries? It's like Alan Zweig from uh, Toronto. He directed like a, he's a little documentaries he makes. He has one called I Curmudgeon. And it's just like, oh. a, it's just talking heads of like him just talking with like famous curmudgeons. Um, I think you'd That's really, so- yeah, they're, they're really good documentaries. Uh, Alan Zweig. I'll, I can send that to you too if you like. Yeah, please. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you, uh, and have a good day. Thank Uh, you. You too, Jared. Nice to meet you. You too. Bye. Bye.